start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And today our guest is Arwen Ellis Dayton, the author of the Seeker series of novels, newly finished with the recent release of Disruptor. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And the uh, trilogy is complete, but is it? That's the big question. You know, in these three books, I I really wanted to tell the story of the four main characters and bring that to a hopefully satisfactory close. Although satisfactory to an author does not necessarily mean entirely satisfactory to a reader, I hope. <laughs> um, but it certainly finished those stories in the way that I wanted to tell them. Hopefully the world itself has unfolded in a way that I could explore other stories down the line, but with different characters. Well, that's one of the great things about a well-built world. If it's if you've really done your job, it will sustain. Uh, it will sustain many stories and many characters uh, and many genres. I mean, there could be a romance. There could be a western. There could be a <laughs> you know. It could be you know seekers in space. You know what's going to happen in a thousand years. Yeah. It's, or what happened a hundred years before this story? It's true. Yeah. It, it, mm-hmm. The palette is broad. I I love the fact that there is. Uh, I mean, there's technology in this that's so old that nobody fully understands how it works, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and there are just people who just have who know by at least by rote yeah, how, by how, rote, to how to operate it. it. But who amongst us knows how to how a television really works either, you know? Well, I kind of was inspired also by my children, one of whom fairly recently asked me what dial tone was. Um, and I was like, oh. And you realize that our understanding of, you know, people used to be able to fix cars. Like, who who can do that anymore? But my dad's generation could, you know, reasonably fix simple things that were wrong mm-hmm. with a car, no problem. And I, I kind of felt like their world had progressed to that point as well, where they'd lost sight of the creation of these things. And so it was almost mythical in the same way that if anything goes wrong with an iPhone, it's kind of mythical to us as well. <laughs> like, mm, good point. Well, if, it's, if anything goes wrong with an iPhone, the technology is so advanced that a a regular human being could not fix it. It requires very advanced diagnostic equipment to to know what's wrong with an iPhone if it breaks. They could say that right. about my car. I mean, you have to plug plug it into a, a you'll excuse the expression uh, Echo Dot, but computer. <laughs> Is it reacting? Did it hear you say its nope, name? No, nope, it didn't. Okay, <laughs> no. we're safe. Not this time. 
So uh, yeah, we have uh, for the listeners. We just <laughs> bought one of these. We we actually have a whole house full of these things, and I've uh, programmed it so that it responds to the keyword computer instead of uh, Alexa. So every time I say the the c word, <laughs> it, hello computer. <laughs> yeah, it it responds. So. But no Do you have an Alexa in your life? Did you need to avoid that name? Uh, no, it just felt... Because we're big, fat Trekkies, okay? I'm just... It, yeah, I get it. It's red. For me, for me, it just felt irritating to repeat a brand name over and over. I see. You okay. Know? So uh, I kind of wanted... I mean, this is why we didn't go with the Google Home, you know, because you have to say, okay, Google, every time you want something. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> So um, tell us about the new book. Uh, first of all, it's let's see, it says it's on sale as of February 7th. So this is, a, this it's is just a few weeks old. Yeah. Yes, it's been a month. It's been about mm-hmm. a month. Uh, well, to touch a little on the first book, um, of course, Seeker was about a teenage girl called Quinn who'd spent most of her life training for what she believed was a noble purpose only to discover that her family was actually turning her into an assassin instead. Um, She grew up in the Scottish Highlands, kind of remote from the rest of the world, where she and these two boys, uh, one was her oldest friend, the other was the boy she thought she loved, spent years training in order to inherit these um, kind of ancient artifacts, these very old tools, which had been handed down in their particular families for hundreds of years. And um, these artifacts allowed them to do some pretty astonishing things, most particularly to appear and disappear from anywhere to anywhere. And Quinn spent her life thinking she was going to inherit these tools and the power that came with them for kind of noble purposes. But her father had twisted the purpose of their families and was planning to use her really to kill people, pretty simply. For big money. For big money to support their lives because it became increasingly easy and perhaps even fun for a certain sort of personality. And all of this takes place in the kind of near future, but in a version of our world where like hooded cloaks and ancient Scottish ruins live comfortably next to futuristic airships and advanced medical technology. And that's the world that we've been watching Quinn try to escape into when she discovers her life is the exact opposite of what she was expecting. So that's in the first book. And in the second book, she and these two boys uh, find that the world of seekers, these families they were born into, is actually much larger than they'd realized. And they kind of get swept up into a very old plot, uh, generations old, that threatens their survival. And in Disruptor, the third and final book so far, uh, Quinn actually has to sort of trace the origin of who and what their families are back to the beginning in order to hopefully invent a future that she can live with and survive in. That's what I'm, I'm trying to figure out a question I can, <laughs> I can ask with, no, 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 without spoiling anything. What am I allowed to talk about? I feel you like know? you, I feel like it's okay to spoil a few things from the first from from the earlier story. But you, you can ask the question. If I don't want to spoil it, I won't. I'll, I'll alter my answer. I'll be cagey. Well, a, lot of, a lot of the drama 
is around the dreads, sort of the the referees who kind of don't step in very often except on, on major occasions like initiations, or if you've done something very, very, very wrong. In which case, it's usually too late to do a course correction. Mm, yeah, yeah, well, otherwise Quinn's father would have gotten spanked a lot sooner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, the interesting thing for me was exploring why that didn't happen, why her father, where did it go wrong, and why wasn't there any effort to uh, sort of right the ship earlier on before Quinn stumbles into how messy things have become. And, uh, of course, the central figure in unraveling that is this girl called Maud, but more uh, often referred to as the young dread, who's actually been alive over the course of 600 years, though not always awake in our world during that time. And she also has to figure out what she's supposed to be doing and why the world doesn't look the way it should based on what the dread's purpose is. Well, it's sort of who watches the watchman because the, the, the middle dread goes right off course. The middle dread may be the worst bad person in the story. That yes. would be a little bit of a spoiler, though. Mm. See, because if I can't talk about him, I can't talk about not. I can't talk about all these little lost boys. You know, the thing with the, so the middle dread is again. So the, who these characters called the dreads are is something that unfolds somewhat slowly over the course of the three books. But right up front, we understand that they have been around for a very long time. They perceive time a bit differently than an ordinary person because they are sort of in the world. And then when the seekers use these tools to move from one place to another, it's not directly. It's actually through a sort of interim set of dimensions. And if you stay there, you can almost stay indefinitely without experiencing time passing. So we have these policemen or referees, as Mm -hmm. you call them, who are almost not like normal people anymore because they spent so much time in this non-time dimension. Uh, but because of that, there's a continuum in theory of uh, their oversight of seekers. And um, the middle dread is the one training them. She, he's training this, this girl, Maud, the young dread, but he's been someone she's disliked her entire life and had to put up with. And just why she doesn't like him and what he's after is part of the whole story. Indeed. It's such a, a different take, you know, on the whole. It's not quite magic. It's not science necessarily. It's a science that is insuff- that is sufficiently advanced mm-hmm. to as to look like magic. Okay, it's that that oh, yes. third law. Uh-huh. There's a science. It's very and it's got you know laws behind it. That's exactly right. And I it's been one of the challenges in this series to properly describe the genre because of that point. And mm-hmm. the world as I described it, you know, it it is a little bit one step or more removed from how we would imagine our world to be in the near future. Yet it is recognizably our world. But the things that are different and the elements of Scotland and mm-hmm. ruins and um where Quinn grew up gives it a fantasy feel, I think. But at its heart, you there are very um, logical, almost scientific explanations for everything that happens. And yet, um, the fact that this is sort of a blend of magic and technology uh, in terms of the way you approach the story elements uh, gives you a flexibility in telling the story that uh, I think you wouldn't otherwise have had. 
I agree. And it, it, it was sort of, it was more organic than perhaps I'm describing it in developing, especially for, from Quinn's point of view, what is essentially handed to her as a legacy, um, its origins and, uh, rules are something she's sort of discovering along the way. Well, and she's she's rediscovering herself because at the beginning of uh, Traveler, she's lost her memory and trying to recover who she is or else not <laughs> or learning learning a whole different uh, skill, almost magical skill set of healing um, in Asia. That's right. And I mean, for me, I, I feel like the biggest inspiration for the story was imagining how deeply you would be affected to discover your parents had truly um twisted everything you believed of them and everywhere you were planning to go in your life had actually been false. And it was a complete betrayal on the part of your parents. And really, where would that leave you? And I always saw Quinn, once she realized that this noble, really this noble calling she committed her life to was BS and didn't exist in the way she'd imagined it, would have to kind of become another person uh, just to keep going. And that's actually about midway through the first book when she's left it all behind only to discover it's not quite that easy. And uh, the pieces of her previous life are going to find her wherever she goes. And this is the the basic theme of, of young adult novels, of course, uh, which is, uh, you know, the coming of age concept, uh, um, figuring out who you are and how to deal with the world. Uh they got a little more to deal with than most people. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's not just it's not just how am I going to cope with life once I'm an adult or you know how how am I going to adapt to this world around me? It's how do I how am I going to adapt to a world when everything I thought I knew was completely backwards or wrong? Uh so it's 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 double the jeopardy that uh, a, a young adult character would normally have to go through. I, I love that I'm still fascinated with the teen years because regardless of the milieu you find yourself in as a teenager, I believe everything feels like it's at 11. The, mm-hmm. the stakes, the emotions, the embarrassment, it's all cranked up so high already that even small things can be very dramatic, which you find in more like contemporary young adult literature, of course. But I find it very enticing to put those feelings into something where the stakes actually are very high, because as you said, it's almost like an exponential um, increase in pressure on somebody at that age. And I don't know why, perhaps it's like a streak of evilness in me, but I find that really appealing. Yeah. If I don't get this new dress, I will die. No, if you don't get uh, get that focal off your head, you will die. <laughs> you will die. You are dying right now. <laughs> It's, but it is certainly an exercise in contrasts, and uh, uh, what a great place to do it! You know, I, it, it's the the uh, the pivot point at which uh, a character in a novel discovers that uh, uh, everything is everything they thought they knew was wrong uh, propels the story forward. And, uh, well, the kids all find out more or less at the same time, but mm-hmm. there are other growth points that come along staggered later. Um, you don't you don't pull punches with with the whole matter of addiction. I've noticed. You know, Shinobi has Shinobu, pardon me, has uh, drug problems early on, and then gets addicted to the the helmet, the focal, which helps them to see things. 
Yeah, he's definitely an addictive personality. And in the yeah. focal, I felt like I was a little bit, it's this, so the focal is really a tool that you use almost like as a helmet you can wear. And it, it, in a sense, can help you focus mentally and you can actually increase your mental powers if used properly. But if used improperly, it kind of will somewhat take over your own thought processes and even even re- retains traces of a previous person who's worn it before many times. So you actually might find the uh, way your own mind is laid out being changed and almost remapped uh, to look a little bit more like someone else who had worn this helmet before, this focal. And so it becomes somewhat addictive and can really take take over the way you look at the world and the way you think if you abuse it or use it too much. So in the first book, Shinobu, Quinn sort of reinvents herself as someone else when she escapes from her family home. Shinobu escapes in a different way, which is through drug use and the Hong Kong of the future. You can get any sort of drug pretty much legally and very easy to feed your habits. So he's fallen into a similar hole to Quinn, but his is with drugs. He manages to kick that habit in mm-hmm. the first book. But in the second book, it becomes replaced by this tool, which appears to be helpful. Um, and I think you, until you, until you're able to overcome the element of your personality that relies on such things, of course, you're always, you're always prey to something that seems like an easy solution. This is very highfalutin for my science fiction <laughs> fantasy YA novel, but that was sort of what was behind it. Is I, I didn't believe he, he couldn't be fixed so quickly. He had, it was going to be a lot more work. But you laid the groundwork so elegantly with the drugs, and then he kicks the drugs. Okay, he's fine. No, he's not. <laughs> but something yeah. will replace them. But it's but it didn't come as a surprise when he started getting getting addicted to the focal. Well, and he could tell himself that it was actually improving him, which in some ways it was. And you see that he, in in a couple of instances, manages to save Quinn by wearing this this focal, this tool that is helping him concentrate. It's just the overuse of it sort of turns him almost into a different person. I could say that about caffeine for that. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the society in which all of this functions. What uh, the society of of the, the world, or yeah, or the, of or of the seekers, uh, of the world around the seekers. How does how does the world around them interface with the seekers, and and how is it changed by them? Well, I truly I, I've tried to construct this world as our world could be in some non-specified number of years in the future, but you might figure like. 30 to 50 years in the future. This could take place and the sorts of technology, aside from the seeker tools that are described in the book, there's uh, airships that clearly use a different technology than we have now. They're almost like, you might imagine, moving at the pace of a blimp, but it's a complete vehicle, you know, metal-based vehicle. There's uh, things that can reconstruct your cells quite simply in ways that we're only touching on right now with stem cells. But you could imagine in 30 years, those things may unfold in the way that are uh, the ways that are described in this book. So that part, aside from the seekers, I envision the world as somewhat true to how it could be. Now, Hong Kong is darker than it seems in real life. And Scotland is maybe more remote than it seems in real life. But those are just the enjoyable exaggerations of something that, that is that way. Now, but how the Seekers interface for me was kind of the evolution of the story itself because Quinn, uh, 
is, has lived the first part of her life thinking there were once many seeker families, but now ours are the only few families left. There may have been more of these tools that we're inheriting, but now these are the final ones that remain. And our job is to do, um, good things with these. Our job is to help this world that I know so little about because I've lived apart from it. Um, but that's, that's sort of my interface is going to be, uh, coming in to help in some way. So really the shock that while the world may be separate from her, n- none of the other things that she grew up believing were quite true. And then that there is this larger world of seekers and the effects that they've created throughout the generations that are still sort of existing in the world that she's about to stumble into. Um, so her worldview is through that to this sort of future world, which I feel is somewhat normal, except for the way she's looking at it. Does that make any sense? Um, yeah, yeah, it does. It was a, uh, I have this knack of ask, asking short questions that get really With long, long answers. answers. You can cut it's me cool. off anytime. No, no, not at all. It's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff because, uh, uh, every writer has to go through this process of creating the universe in which their characters live. And we talk to the writers that, uh, you know, who appear on the show uh, with a mind to finding out exactly how that particular author handled that problem. So it's always It's always something different. Yeah, it's always fascinating. I think the character that most exemplifies sort of the core of what you were asking is really John, mm-hmm. who is this, uh, he's the boy that Quinn thinks that she's in love with at the beginning of the story. And mm-hmm. he has lived a, uh, while wealthy, a more ordinary life uh, in the early part of his life, yet understood that his mother, who died when he was very young, but that his mother came from this other world, this world of seekers, and he comes to Scotland um, kind of late for a seeker to train, but he comes there to train. But he brings this view of the outer world that Quinn really isn't familiar with, and he's a character who's kind of lived in both uh, in both worlds for his whole life. So his evolution of bringing, bringing what he's learned back to the world um, was kind of the route I had to use to explore really what that world was like. Now, how old were the, the three seekers or students um, at the beginning of the story? They were 15, 15, and 16. Okay. And how old are your kids when this story uh, began? When the story began, gosh, I'd have to calculate. But my oldest child is now 16. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're still looking at how turned up to 11 it is when you're that age. <laughs> That's true, yes. I, I feel like I need to write my stories involving young people will be the most real during the time when my children are that age. Or maybe not. Maybe it's the opposite. Well, it's what, you know, you, you write what you know and what, what's happening to you now. And what's happening to you now may not be ancient technologies and, and you know, household dirigibles, but <laughs> but maybe you'd like them to be. I would love some household dirigibles. When are they coming? Um, I don't, they're, they're decommissioning the, the, the Goodyear blimp in our part of the world, so uh, yeah. no so, time so, soon. So, so lo- farther and farther away. Alas, alas. <sighs> it's, um... Uh, no, I got nothing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it sounded so deep. I thought. Yeah, yeah I really thought. Yeah, I mean, it's it's intense uh, question there. Y- you start talking and uh, and you insert this pregnant pause, and everybody <laughs> hangs on your next word. And when you don't have that word, you're in serious trouble. 
So how many clans of Seekers were there at the beginning? There were nine, as well as a, what you could call a tenth clan, which became the Dreads themselves, Mm -hmm. the sort of founders of the Seekers, and the ones who have gone on supposedly to, um, well, I thought your word was good, to referee, in a sense, the way the Seekers are using these artifacts. Yeah, police implies a law and a, you know, somebody who makes the laws and the dreads kind of aren't doing that. They're, they're, they're referees sound a little more, better. A little me. more arbitrary. Yeah. A little more subjective anyway. Yes, subjective. It, it seems to me that the seekers are more, uh, people who sit back and watch and make sure everything is going the way they want it to. Yeah, but and when they only own- interfere and only interfere when things go off the rails with respect to whatever their uh whatever their agenda is. And for the most part, we don't know what that is. We still don't. <laughs> well, we know I mean we know the original agenda was very simple. It was it was the thing that Quinn believed. We're, we have these tools, we can use them to do to push things along in the right direction. Uh it's just that most humans over a long period of time can't seem to be trusted with a simple beneficial goal like that. So, so, it's, it's, so power corrupts, does it? It, it? Power corrupts if you're corruptible. And the middle dread certainly certainly showed himself to be uh, not the most solid citizen. And uh, with the old dread, you know, taking taking his rest, there's just nobody to out, outrule him, overrule him. That's right. So poor young dread is finally figures out what she has to do next. And hilarity ensues. No, <laughs> adventures, and, adventures. And death and mayhem. Yeah, for this is pretty violent for a young adult novel, I gotta say. But I guess they're all getting that way these days. Well, Almost all. It, it's violent in a, I guess it's violent on a somewhat small scale. But yes, I can't argue with that. I, I have, I have parents of readers asking me, uh, my kid is 11, how are your books for them? And I say, I'll say, if they, if you're okay with them reading this and this, then it's okay. Otherwise, maybe wait till they're 13. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Of course, in a world where people are taking their toddlers to Deadpool, <laughs> who the yes, heck exactly. knows? <laughs> it's hard to know what one's standards are supposed to be on that topic. But, you know, you can give... You can just hope that the mother or father who's asking has a standard and try to help them with that. And, yeah, if they're asking, they're they're not going to do anything stupid. Yep. Exactly. They, don't want, they want the best for their children. Uh, my guess is that if they're precocious enough to pick up a 400-page novel. This wasn't no 400. Yeah, well, they're, they're close. They're 380, 370. This one some. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they're, they're pretty hefty. If if, uh, if an eleven year old has enough focus to get all the way from one end of a, a work like that to the other, they're probably okay in other areas too. Well, they've so. probably read Harry Potter already. Mm, yes. I mean, nobody's editing that woman. <laughs> they just long. got longer and longer. And we were we were happy for them to be long. Um, well, yeah, but oh, don't get me started on, on editing <laughs> and people and. Artists, uh, writers who are just too big for their, too big to be edited because nobody's got the big brass ones to do it. And, um, I think that the last Harry Potter book could have been about half the length and it would have been fine. Fine! <laughs> I think that you have a valid point. I also wonder if the publisher thinks 
it's legitimate to charge more money for a longer book, so I'm mm. also not incentivized to edit. Good point. Good point. I didn't have pro- this problem with your books, by the way. I'm just... Oh, thank you. <laughs> I like getting the pushback of an editor. I think it... And also of your beta readers, if you have... If you're so lucky to have some friends you trust, uh, especially who, who actually... my favorite kinds of readers just are not trying to get technical with their comments. They just give you their audience member comments. Like, mm-hmm. I, I was so excited for this. I was disappointed here. I didn't expect, you know, that those kind of comments I absolutely love because you can't argue with the emotional reaction someone has to something. You can sort of argue with what they then, their explanation for it. But the, mm-hmm. that emotional reaction and kind of seeing if you achieved what you meant to, I think... I really, I really appreciate having that feedback as I'm editing. It's a, it's like a, um, a test screening for a film. You know, you go to the film and you see if, if people are gasping in the right places and laughing <laughs> exactly. in the right places. If they're laughing in the wrong places, then you need to edit. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. once, I, I, I once uh, listened to this interview with uh, a, the guy who directed Airplane, Zucker, right? That's his name. Yeah, and he. Um, he sat in the test screening and he recorded the test screening of, of airplane. I think it was. Mm-hmm. And he was sweating because there just, people weren't laughing enough and there seemed to be all these blank pauses. And then he, he went back and he listened to the recording he'd made and he realized everyone was laughing in the right place. They just, those places were too far apart and he cut 30 minutes or something from the movie uh-huh. and, and it was done. He just made the laughs closer together. And I think that, all of editing is a version of that. Like make, you're making the exciting stuff happen closer together, the more emotional stuff. Just the it's letting you trim the fat in a way that mm-hmm. gets to those moments quicker. I, I think that is sort of what I'm trying to do when I edit. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know one of the 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 things that you want to eliminate as an artist of any kind is how much cheese you have in your product. And uh, so uh, the editor's job, I guess, is to cut the cheese. I like cheese. We all like cheese. Maybe we should use a different metaphor. That's a, yeah, bad metaphor. <laughs> How much cutting, styrofoam cutting the cheese? is in your product? Stop it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Styrofoam. Styrofoam. That's good. <laughs> I like it. styrofoam. We got it. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, it's – it's uh, uh, and, and conversely um, – uh, you can have what could have been a great book padded up with so much styrofoam that you can't just can't get past it. You know, it's like eating a like eat, eating a rice cake. Yeah, yes. it sounds great on the surface until you actually eat one with no with nothing on it. And then you think this is all it is all the way through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no chocolate center. No. You know, and uh, uh, putting Nutella on a rice cake is good stuff, but. Most diets don't recommend that, unfortunately. <laughs> Alas. So, um, did you, uh, you must have had a starting place before writing these books. How did you get started as a writer, and when did you come to the realization that you could actually turn out some really solid material and, and, and be a science fiction writer? Well, I don't, does any writer ever really have that realization? But, but I feel like every time you start a new project, it feels like square one, reinventing the wheel. Maybe mm-hmm. then the process of getting back into it is faster with each one. But, um, I was a kid who around age eight was writing science fiction stories longhand on the big ruled paper that we had in middle school. 
uh, and then forcing the rest of the class to listen to them at read aloud. Um, so I guess I knew when I was eight that I wanted to do that. Now that I could turn out a solid piece of writing, I don't know. My, my, my eight year old friends were enchanted that somebody wrote a story that could be read over the course of more than one day, but I'm guessing it was pretty awful if I still had a copy <laughs> of it now. Um, and before, before Seeker, I had two standalone novels, uh, both sci-fi, although one was mm-hmm. almost more of a romantic sci-fi. Um, and, you know, I think you sort of are haunted by stories that you can't get rid of without writing, if you're a writer, and mm-hmm. you sort of go through the process of trying to exercise them, get them out of you. And if they, you start to like what comes out, then you think maybe, maybe. Oops. Oops. Um, we lost her. Nemo nudged the. Sorry, it's just. Here we are. I'm sorry. We just, we, we lost you for about 10 seconds there. Oh, okay. What's well, tell me. Uh, let's see. You were talking about, uh, um, uh, <sighs> something you lost. Hello. Hello. Yeah, yeah, we're just okay. we're thinking. We're trying to figure out what where where you left off. We'll just roll it back uh, a couple sentences and Yeah. I um let's see we had asked you uh you were talking about uh, the quality of your work when you were 8. <laughs> do, you think, do you think we got through that part? Yeah, I think we got through that part. And then um if you like what if, you know, you you write so you, and you, yeah, if you like what you, you write, you keep writing. Yeah, I mean and I don't know I feel like I, you like what you, you have these stories, they, they sort of haunt you and irritate you and refuse to leave. Uh, that's to me at least what being a writer is about. And then mm-hmm. you've got to get these stories down on paper somehow. And, uh, hopefully you get better and better about doing that and the process becomes a little more predictable. But I never, I don't think it's all that predictable, uh, no matter how good you are at it. So, so whither, whither you're writing? Where, where, where do we go from here? Right now I'm writing a book of, uh, short stories, some of which are not all that short, but together they are about, uh, book length altogether. Mm. Um, and they are all on the topic of, uh, humans modifying themselves because, uh, we're going to increasingly be able to do this. I, I was talking about stem cells a little bit earlier and mm-hmm. now they're growing an entire human heart in, an incubator uh, on some sort of like collagen framework using stem cells they took from somebody's skin. Mm-hmm. And I so project that forward for the next 5, 10, 50, 100 years and more. What will humans look like? And so these, I think it's going to be about six stories total, start about five years from now. And each one is progressively farther into the future until the final one is almost the year, I think, 2180, something like that, Um, kind of with these brief vignettes exploring uh, life as a young person in that particular world. Transhumanism. Sort of, yes. And it's, um, although I think transhumanism is almost like a robot human combination Um, in the mind. It's whatever comes next. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, humans modifying themselves to become whatever the next thing yeah. is. All right, then it is transhumanism, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, but it starts off very subtly in the first few stories, uh, and then things get a little bit more out of hand <laughs> towards the later stories, and maybe even come full circle by the end. 
so you do a lot of uh, a lot of reading of just you know following your nose stuff you know, as as uh, as part of your research then. Yes, and I, honestly, the the developments that my children's children will take for granted are kind of mind boggling in the in the medical field. Um, but I and one part of me thinks that being able to change ourselves in that way should be strictly positive and there's only really sensibly only good that can come out of it but the greater part of me thinks that we will screw it up terribly terribly somehow and the stories are kind of exploring the ways both sides of that might happen yes there are all kinds of things i mean you know botched uh, plastic surgery happens all the time oh sure people usually say if only we were better at it so well what if we were better at it would it really be better so hmm. uh, that's, well, let's find that was out. kind of the inspiration for these. It's, it sounds like a neat story arc. I mean, a neat collection of stories, I should say. Well, it they is are a story arc. somewhat connected. Well, it there's is a story a, arc, but a single yeah. is yes, and there's there is a character who's almost a sort of televangelist who appears in several of the stories, and in, in fact ends up inspiring the way the culture goes in the later stories. And maybe not in a good way. No, not not particularly a good way at all. <laughs> if it was a good way, it wouldn't be a story. <laughs> well, that that uh, that sort of harkens to um, uh, the perception of beauty as is inculcated in our youth by popular media, especially fashion magazines. You know, be the be pretty, be beautiful, have an impossible, impossibly small waist. You know, yeah, but when me- medical technology catches up with it, you can have the impossible waste and the, you can be thin. Can you be too thin? Yes. <laughs> Could you fly? Could you run as fast as a cheetah? Could you? There's so many other things. Are you still human? So um, anyway, that was that was the the inciting uh, concept for these stories. Mm-hmm. It's taking uh, is it more on the inside or the outside? I mean, I mean, you know, growing someone a new pancreas is exciting too. Absolutely, and that's how it begins. As all stories begin, subtly and and, and uh, hardly seeming potentially dangerous at all, and uh, and it's really just where it unfolds after that that things start to get interesting. It's that that inciting incident that has to happen, like almost right away. That. Uh, Shoot the sheriff in the first reel, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it's, I, I'm enjoying short stories because you get to, you have to shoot the sheriff every time. And so that's kind of fun as a like writer to figure out how, how you quickly do that. One. Mm-hmm. Stories that are much, much less long. Yeah, I mean, shoot the, shoot the sheriff on page one, right? Exactly. Right. Susan. No, no messing around there. <laughs> right. So do you, um, uh, do you teach story development as well, or I mean, do you are there? You sound like you could. <laughs> you could. I, you know, it's funny. I, I think that all writers teach each other. Like you end up, it, you end up getting to know other authors on tour and, uh, you know, at comic cons and places where your publisher sends you. But when you when you actually spend more concentrated time, I, I recently did a tour with uh, four other authors, all writing YA but very different YAs and. We had such a good time over that week, and I think you end up sort of coming, finding what your similarities and differences are, and mm-hmm. kind of influencing each other's processes somewhat just by being together for that amount of time. 
So it's part of uh, sort of a flow. Um, you are part of, of a, an intellectual continuum then. In a way. And, I, and you also, you, you didn't realize you had all these questions until you were with somebody else who has the same job. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the, the relief and kind of excitement and comparing notes and finding, oh, you do that totally differently. Oh, you don't revise at all. Your first draft is it. Like, is kind of... Um, Will really? change that's, your perspective. That scares you found, me. You found somebody who who sends in their first draft? No, nobody sends in their first draft. <laughs> but I do know an author who just writes very clearly and well uh, right off the bat. So of course there's editing, but mm-hmm. she can write for so much less time to re- achieve the product that most others uh, require. That I mean, she says I try not to tell people. Mm. <laughs> we won't ask you to reveal your source. Yeah. Some people just have a, a a very clear, open, accessible writing style. Isaac Asimov was this way, and it was um, he was one of the authors that hooked me into science fiction in the first place because I had the good fortune to stumble across some of his YA stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of guys from that era also because they were writing for the pulps. They didn't do a lot of drafts. It was on typewriters, and they mm-hmm. had to send it out every week, a new story practically. They, they, they learned, they trained themselves like Dickens to get it right, right off the bat. Well, and Ray Bradbury was known for this as well. He, That's I don't right. think he published anything ever that, uh, that wasn't a first draft. He, I think he wrote Fahrenheit 451 in nine days. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Well, and uh, he also, most of what he did was short stories. The novels that he wrote were actually very few. Mm-hmm. That's true. I think uh, Dandelion Wine and Fahrenheit 451 are the only two I can think of. And, and then they're the rest quite of them, short. The rest of them were episodic or, you know, the yeah, Martian Chronicles or... was kind of a story arc, but they were very discreet stories. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and, well, and, The Illustrated Man is still one of my biggest inspirations as a writer. And the, the emotional impact those stories delivered when I was a kid, uh, I can still viscerally remember each one of them. Yeah. It was very um, cinematic, really. And it, it's, and it really mm-hmm. lent itself to the movie, you know, being made a movie. He, You're right. He, he wrote in a way that was so easily visualized by anyone. It was like he was just describing what was happening around him in the room is how he felt. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been speaking with Arwen Ellis Dayton, the author of the Seeker series, the newest book. Disruptor is out from uh, Delacorte Press, uh, an imprint of Random House. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Event Horizon. We're very glad to have had you with us. Thank you, guys, and thank you for letting me talk about my childhood <laughs> author crushes like Ray Bradbury. <laughs> yeah, we loved hearing it. Thank you again. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to episode 165 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for March 18th, 2017. Our guest this afternoon has been Arwen Ellis Dayton, author of the Seeker science fantasy series of young adult novels, with the third book in the series being entitled Disruptor. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Jean Turnbow. This episode will air again tomorrow at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. That's the same time. Uh, and on Sunday. And two more times... 
on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern, so the other half of the world can hear it. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Krypton Radio is listener-supported geek culture radio, and though some of our money does come from advertising, most of it comes from avid listeners just like you. If you enjoy listening to Krypton Radio, please help us out so that we can stay on the air. Visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and contribute whatever you can. Even $5 a month makes an enormous difference because it all adds up. Single drops of water can add up to a tidal wave, and that can keep your favorite radio station and shows like this one on the air and thriving. If you are an artist, writer, actor, or other creator, and you would like to appear as a guest on the Event Horizon, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2017 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.